hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here at the Medina East Campus. Those of you who are in the room and those of you who are watching online as well, we're just glad you're here. And happy Father's Day weekend. And can we just, again, I know we did this already, but can we just give a hand and just say thank you to God for all the fathers and for all the grandfathers and... Even some of you who are great grandfathers, we just want to say thank you so much. We, we just want to say that we love and appreciate you, and we, we so appreciate the role that you play in, uh, in the family, in the church, in society, and we just are so, so grateful for those who wear the badge of father, and uh, you just mean a lot to us. And so we hope that today you get a chance to enjoy Father's Day. Hopefully you get a chance to do something that you love, and you get to be with the people that you love, and so we hope that for you. So Father's Day weekend here at Medina East, what are we talking about on Father's Day? What are we talking about? Uh, we decided we're going to talk about sex on Father's Day, and uh, so uh, you can do with that what you want to do with that, but I can tell you this, and I, and I, I genuinely mean it, uh, that we, uh, as we were thinking about this series that we're in, today we're talking about Jesus over my sexuality, and we actually did not intend for this talk to fall on Father's Day. It just happened to be that way, and so that was not on, there was nothing, I'm not trying to say anything about that, uh, but here's what I thought was kind of comical, was I actually was curious, and I was like, you know, when's the last time that we preached on sex here at our campus. And so I went back and I looked, and it actually was two years ago on Father's Day that we talked about sex. And so even though that's not intentional, apparently it's traditional. And so we're going to try to keep that up next year. And uh, so that's a, that's a good thing. But, uh, but no, so uh, obviously that when we talk about Jesus over my sexuality, when we talk about the idea of sex, I think all of us know that this is a pretty loaded uh, conversation. It's a loaded topic that can go in a lot of different directions. And it's one of those topics that I'm sure brings up a lot of emotions, maybe brings up a lot of responses and, and, and maybe different things in your heart and in your mind. Uh, this is one of those talks that I know uh, every time that we talk about sex at the Medina East Campus, which is actually fairly often. And I know that I'm kind of in for an interesting cafe experience. Uh, a good amount of people will walk past me awkwardly and not make eye contact. And uh, so I just know I'm in for that. So I guess, I guess here's the question, maybe to just start with. Why are we talking about this? Uh, why, why did we decide that in this series that we thought it would be an important thing that we take a week to talk about Jesus over my sexuality? Well, let me give you a couple reasons. There's a lot, but let's give you a couple. The first one is this. Right now we're in a series uh, that's called Jesus Over My Body, but that series is actually part of a bigger series. It's called Jesus Over All. And some of you, if you're newer to Grace or you haven't been with us in a while, you might just be catching us this weekend. And you might not know that over the past several weeks, we've been really talking about this idea of what does it look like to live life in alignment with the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And so this has been a big conversation, but basically you've been looking at what the Bible says, and the Bible's going to say that Jesus has supremacy over all things, that, he is, uh, that, that all things are created for him, in him, by him, and through him. And so because of that, we're saying if that's true, if what Scripture is saying is true about Jesus, if what Jesus says about himself is true, then we're saying practically speaking, what does it look like to pursue a life where Jesus is above all? And so one of the reasons that we're talking about sexuality is because sexuality is part of our lives. It's a very big and important part of our lives. And so I think it's important that we talk about that. And can I just also say this? I think from my own experience and maybe my experience as a pastor, I've actually found that if there is one topic, if there's one place where we're most inclined to ignore God or we're most inclined to misunderstand God... I think that it is maybe in our sexuality, which is why I think it's important that we talk about it. That's one reason. Here's the second reason why I think it's important that we talk about this is because this topic, you know, we all know this, is totally in our face. 
It is completely in our face. No matter where we go, uh, our culture is one that is sex-saturated. And so whether you want to or not, whether you have chosen to or not, this is a conversation that is oftentimes thrust in your face. We see it on social media. We see it uh, in our music. We see it in, in everything around us, pop culture. Everything around us is already speaking to sexuality. And so because of that, we said, man, with all of these voices that are happening and, and are, 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 that we hear around us that are speaking to us about sexuality, we said this, we said, man, those who follow Jesus, uh, we should not be shy and we should not be ashamed to speak into human sexuality. The truth is, God has some incredible things to say about sex. God made sex, God loves sex, and so because of that, we said it's important that we as a church, and it's also that, we as, that it's important that we as followers of Christ are not ashamed to speak up as it relates to sex. So for those reasons and many others, uh, that's why we're talking about this idea of Jesus over my sex. So uh, where, where are we going to go with today's conversation? What is kind of my goal? So let me just tell you what I'm hoping to do today, and then we're just going to jump in. So, so here's my goal, because like I said, there's so many things that you can say about the topic of sexuality and the topic of sex as it relates to the Bible and as it relates to God. But here's kind of my goal today. My goal is that I want each and every single one of us who are here today and those who are watching online, my hope is that each and every single one of us would consider and would question our sexual narrative, I know that might sound kind of weird to you, but let me just say that again. My goal is that every single person in this room, whether you're churched or you're unchurched, you're a follower of Jesus or you're investigating Jesus, no matter who you are, my hope is, is that you would consider and that you would question your sexual narrative. Now, you might be asking, what do you mean by that, sexual narrative? Okay, well, here's what I'm convinced of. I believe that every single person who is here today, and every single person for that matter, just, you know, in general, that we all have a certain understanding of sex. We have a certain understanding of sexuality. Or you could put it this way, we all have a sexual narrative. There's a certain story that we're telling ourselves or that's being told to us that we believe about sex. And each sexual narrative, I think, is, is trying to answer at least three questions. And so those questions would be things like this. What is sex and why does it matter? What is sex exactly? And what is the purpose of sex, and why does it matter? Number two, what does sexual maturity look like? What does it look like to be a sexually mature person, to flourish sexually? What does sexual health look like? And then number three, what does sexual morality look like? What is right or wrong as it relates to sex? Now, here, here's what I'm, what I'm trying to get at, is I believe that every single one of us, knowingly or unknowingly, whether we're aware of it or not, we all believe certain things about sex. There's a sex narrative, and I don't know about you, but how would you answer these questions? What is sex, and why does it matter? What does sexual maturity look like, and what does sexual morality look like? So what I want to do is I actually want to uh, give you at least two kind of common sexual narratives that I believe are in our midst, and then I want to start to think about what is God's narrative? If you look at the Bible, what is the biblical narrative? How would the Bible, how would Jesus answer these questions. This is what I want to look at. Now, before I dive into that, I just want to give uh, a little bit of credit where credit's due. And I want to let you know that some of this language that I'm using, sexual narrative and, and some of the ideas that we're going to talk about, I have adopted and I have adapted from someone named Dr. Julie Slattery. Uh, you may not have heard her name. Dr. Julie Slattery, is, uh, she's a clinical psychologist. She's also the co-founder of an organization called Authentic Intimacy. 
Uh, that is a, a ministry that actually seeks to reclaim sexuality uh, for, uh, for the gospel. Uh, she's written some incredible books, and she's been an incredibly helpful voice. In fact, I'll talk about this a little bit at the end of today's message. But in light of this week, which is Jesus over my sexuality, and next week, which is Jesus over my gender. So we understand that these are two kind of hot topics that are going to cause a lot of questions, maybe for a lot of different people. We actually have an event coming up in July where we ask Dr. Julie Slattery to come, and she's going to be able to share with us a little bit there, and then she and I are going to host a Q&A. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. That's going to be coming up in July, and I'll mention that at the end of today's message. Uh, but anyway, all right, so sexual narratives. So let me give you a couple that I think that we see within our midst. So here would be an example. The first one is something that we could call the cultural narrative. The cultural. Now, what do I mean by cultural narrative? Well, here's what I mean. This, of course, is the story about sex that is being propagated the most by mainstream society today. So this is what is most pushed in public schools. This is what's most applauded in the media. This is what is most celebrated in our music. This would be the cultural narrative. And so how would the cultural narrative answer these questions? Well, first off, what is sex and why does it matter? The cultural narrative would basically say this, that sex is a biological impulse. That's what it is. It's just a natural impulse. And the reason it's important is because it's part of your identity and it's an expression of your true self. So the cultural narrative would say sex is a biological impulse, but it's an important part of your identity. It's an important part of being your true and authentic self. So in light of that, what does sexual maturity look like? Well, the cultural narrative would say sexual maturity, sexual flourishing comes through sexual experimentation and self-expression without limitation. So basically the idea is this, that what you do with your body is entirely up to you as an expression of your authentic self. This is the story that's being told. And under, under this narrative, um, nobody has the authority to tell you to do what to do with your body but you. And, you. and you're the one who has exclusive rights to that. So what does sexual morality look like? What is right or wrong sexually? Well, sexual morality means respecting people's personal choices and their personal freedoms. So in other words, in the cultural narrative, there's not a lot that's right or wrong. The only thing that's right or wrong is this, is that you should never deny yourself sexually, never deny your self-expression of your authentic self. And the second thing is you should never be intolerant of someone else's sexual expression. Those are really the only two rules. Um, this cultural narrative, I think all of us are somewhat familiar with this because it's what we're inundated with in society right now. This could also be expressed another way. Maybe you guys have heard this before. Some people call this the sex positivity movement. You've heard that. that. That term, sex positive or sex positivity, was actually coined by Wilhelm Reich, which was in light of the sexual revolution. But let me just give you a definition of sex positivity. This comes from uh, Dr. Vanessa Marin. Uh, so she is actually a sex therapist and a licensed psychotherapist. She was interviewed in the Oprah magazine about sex positivity. And here's what she said about sex positivity. So sex positivity is essentially giving yourself permission to continuously rewrite your own sexual script so long as it never disrupts the script of others. Being sex positive means you get to declare, this is my body, this is my life, these are my desires, I'm an adult, and I get to ask myself as often as I please, what do I want in terms of my sexuality? So I think this is another way of vocalizing the cultural narrative. That's one narrative. 
But I think there's also another narrative I want to mention that I believe is also in our midst. And this is actually something that Dr. Slattery would call the purity narrative. So whereas the cultural narrative is the one that's most propagated in mainstream society, the purity narrative would be the one that's most propagated by the faith community, by those who are within maybe the church. All right, so what is the purity narrative? Well, the purity narrative would answer the questions this way. What is sex and why does it matter? Well, sex is for marriage, and it's for procreation, and it's an important part of following God. Okay, so what is sex? It's for marriage and procreation, and it's an important part of following God. So what would sexual maturity look like? Well, sexual maturity, sexual flourishing is found in getting married as a virgin and keeping sex within marriage. All right, now, let me, let me just say that if you're, I think for maybe, I don't know how many of us in here, but probably for some of us in here, if you grew up in the church or around the church, and especially if you grew up in the church in the 80s or the 90s or in the early 2000s, my guess is that for some of us, this was probably the narrative that was most given to us about our sexuality. I can just tell you in my own experience, I, I didn't start following Jesus until I was 17, so I didn't really grow up in the church. And I remember when I started following Jesus, when I went to church, I really never heard any message or any, I never went to any class or heard anything about sex. Like it just was something you didn't talk about. And I do remember that when it was talked about, it usually was at like at a special youth gathering and the message was really simple. It was this, sex, don't, <laughs> right? Unless you're married, and then do. And any other question you had on the topic, you just never talked about. And, and listen, my guess is that for some of you, maybe you grew up in, in this same kind of setting. And so there was a whole bunch of uh, promise rings and purity rings and, and uh, true love waits events and I kiss dating goodbye. I don't know if you guys remember that. There actually was a song by Jackie Velasquez that was called I Promise. And some of you might know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, man. And, and, but it was a whole thing where the whole message was just, just don't. Just save yourself for marriage. And that's kind of the end of it. So in light of that, then, what would sexual morality look like? Well, sexual morality simply is just not having sex before marriage. That's it. So how do, you, how do you become a sexually moral person? You save sex for marriage. Now, here's the thing. If you grew up with this, um, any other question that you had about sex or any other issue besides just don't until you're married and then do was often something that was taboo and was never talked about. And so, for example, if you had questions like, well, Okay, I get it, but what about topics like, like masturbation? Like, what do you what do you do? Where does that fit in? That that was a word that we never even said in our church. At least I remember not ever hearing that word at all. Or what about this? What if you're a person who decided that you were going to save sex for marriage, and you did, and then you got married, and you found that when you got married, sex actually wasn't great, but it was a struggle. Well, then what do you do? How does that fit? Or what about this? What about okay, so if you're married, then what, 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 is, what goes in the bedroom? What, what is allowed and what is not allowed in the bed? Never was something that we ever talked about. Or what about this one? What if you're a person who experienced sexual trauma or sexual abuse? What if, you're, what if your virginity was something that was taken from you? Well, then how does that fit into a narrative like this. And listen, let me just tell you that here's what I think that, I've, that we've discovered. I think what we've discovered is that while the purity narrative does contain some truth. And by the way, it does. And we're going to talk about that here in a second. I think what you're going to see is that it is a woefully incomplete narrative. There is far more to the story 
about why God has created sex. So here's, here's the question that we're after with the rest of our time here today, is how would God answer these questions? What is God's, what, is, what would be the narrative that Jesus would give to us? Because we're talking about Jesus over my sexuality, and what is the story behind our sex that God is inviting us to live into? And so having said all of that, if you got your Bibles, why don't you flip open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So buckle up. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where we're going to go. Now, I know that was a long introduction, but I think it was a needed introduction before we jump into this passage. So 1 Corinthians 6, we're going to invite you to go. That's page 927 in the Bibles that are under the chairs. If you don't own a Bible, you can have one of ours. Make that a gift from us to you. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, as you're locating this passage in, in 1 Corinthians, let me just give you a little bit of background into the Corinthian situation. Okay, so uh, here's what's kind of going on. So the Apostle Paul uh, was a first century missionary. He's writing a letter to a church in a place called Corinth. He wrote this about in the mid-50s AD. Now let me tell you a little bit about Corinth because I think this is important. So the Corinthian church was actually a group of new Christians who were embedded in a very progressive city. So the Corinthians were these, these Christians. They had just become Christians. They were very, very new in their faith. And they were embedded in this really progressive city. In fact, one commentator actually says about Corinth, he says, Corinth was at once the New York City, the Los Angeles, and the Las Vegas of the ancient world. So it's a very, very progressive city. And on top of all of that, the, the, the Corinthian city was known for one thing specifically. They were known for their hypersexuality. This was a hyper-sexualized place. In fact, um, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, uh, but the term Corinth that actually was also used as a verb to speak about someone who is a sexual deviant. So if you said, man, that girl is acting like a Corinthian, or if you said, that guy, he's nothing but a Corinthian, what you meant was that guy's a hornball, or that you know, the person's a sex-crazed person. And that was the way that they, so it actually was used as a verb. They had in Corinth, get this, they had over a thousand temple prostitutes. It actually was part of how they worshiped in this time. And one commentator estimated that that meant that one out of every 30 people in the city of Corinth would have been a prostitute. And so you can get the idea, it was a hyper-sexualized place. So Paul is writing them, because many in the Corinthian church carried sexual baggage and continued sexual habits into their relationship with Christ. So these people were becoming Christians, but remember they lived in this city and it was an anything goes kind of city. And so a lot of them were persisting in some of these same sex. A lot of these guys who had just come to know Christ were still visiting prostitutes and they, and they thought it was okay. And so the apostle Paul is writing that. Now, why is he writing to them? And this is, listen, this is so important. I want you to catch this. Here's why the apostle Paul is writing to them. And it's so important that I actually put it on the screen. So here it is. The apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthian church because he's going to deconstruct their sexual narrative. He's going to take apart the way that they understand sex and he is going to rewire it to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So why is the Apostle Paul writing? He's going to confront and deconstruct their way of thinking about sex, the story that they're telling themselves about sex. And he's going to rewire it, and he's going to reconstruct it to the gospel. So having said all that, let's jump in at verse 12. All right, so here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says to these Corinthians, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. 
All right, so real quick, um, let's just pause here for a second. To make sense of what this passage is saying, I think you have to first understand what the Apostle Paul is doing. All right, so what what is he doing? Well, you're actually going to notice in this passage, there's a bunch of quotation marks. Do you guys notice this? A bunch of quotation marks. So the question is, who exactly is it that the Apostle Paul is quoting here? And you're going to find out when you dig in, what it is, is the Apostle Paul is actually quoting from some of the popular slogans of the Corinthians about sex. That's what he's, he's, he's quoting them. So, so in, in some ways, you could think about it like this. Like in our society, if, if, I, if someone said to you, hey, man, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Uh, you and I know that is a popular slogan that is used in today's society, and it represents a certain worldview about certain things. And so in the same way, the Apostle Paul is going to quote uh, some famous sayings of people in his time, and he's going to confront them. And so notice there's two specific things that he quotes. So one slogan is this, I have the right to do anything. And the second one is this, food for the stomach and stomach for the food. So here's a question. What do these two quotes reveal to us about the sexual narrative of the Corinthian people? And if you actually dig into it and you study it a little bit, what you're going to see is that what's behind these two quotes are these two narratives. Number one, it's that sexual freedom is a personal preference. So the Corinthians believe this, that the way that you become a sexually free person is that you don't deny yourself anything sexually. It's found in personal preference. And then number two They believe that what you do with your physical body has no bearing on your soul, has no bearing on your soul whatsoever. That's the whole idea of your stomach for food and food for the stomach, that that whole thing. Now, here's the thing. Even though the Corinthian culture was different than the culture that we live in today, I don't think it takes much, much work for us to consider the fact that what you see about what the Corinthians believed about sex was actually not all that much different from the cultural narrative that we see around us, not much different at all. And so the Apostle Paul is going to deconstruct this narrative. He starts off by dealing with this first quotation. I have the right to do anything. And again, the idea there was that freedom is found in basically doing whatever I want. Hey, hey, as long as there's two consenting adults and as long as nobody gets hurt and there's nothing wrong with it, we're free to do whatever we want. That's basically what the Corinthians were saying. And the Apostle Paul is going to come in and he's going to say, Okay, you say that, but there's two problems with that. There's two flaws, logically. And the first one is this. I have the right to do anything, he says. Yeah, he says, but not everything is beneficial. Not everything is beneficial. In other words, here's what Paul's going to say. Hey, listen, just because it's legal doesn't mean that it's moral. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Not everything is beneficial. Just because culture accepts this, doesn't mean that it's something that God necessarily approves of. Just because this is something that is legal in a society doesn't mean that this is something that is healthy for a society. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Now, I'll tell you what I think is so awesome is the Apostle Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago, but I think this is timeless wisdom that he is giving us. Uh, As I was preparing and studying for today's talk, I'll tell you, one of the things that blew me away was the amazing amount of articles and research that has been done that are being released right now, and by non-Christian sources, I mean, this is just all over the map, who are saying, man, look at the damaging effects that are happening in people because of the sexual freedom culture that we live in. Uh, There was one article that just came out, this was just last year, by the Washington Post, which is like in no way like a conservative source of media. And yet in this article, the article was called Consent is Not Enough. We need a new sex ethic. 
And here's what the Washington Post said. In our post-sexual revolution culture, there seems to be wide agreement among young, uh, among young adults that sex is good, and the more we have, the better. That assumption includes the idea that we don't need to be tied to a relationship or marriage, that our proclivities are personal, and that they're not to be judged by others, not even by participants. In this landscape, there's only one rule. Get consent from your partner beforehand, but the outcome is a world in which young people, and I notice this, are both liberated, they're free, and they're miserable, and they're miserable. The article goes on to explain what that misery looks like psychologically, emotionally, and physically, and in many different ways. And what they're saying is, it's not working. It's not working. Yeah, you're free to do whatever you want, but our freedom has led us to misery. That sounds like the Apostle Paul to me. Yeah, I'm free to do whatever I want. Yeah, but not everything's good for you and not everything's good for society. And so Paul is gonna say the very, very same thing. And then, notice he's gonna give us another reason. He's gonna repeat it. He's gonna say, I have the right to do anything. And he says this. He says, yeah, but I'm not gonna be mastered by anything. I'm not going to be mastered by anything. Well, I hope, I hope you actually catch the irony in what the Apostle Paul just said there. They said, I'm free to do anything. And the Apostle Paul said, yeah, but when you use your freedoms to, pers- to pursue sexuality without limitations, you actually are be- using your freedom to become a slave to your desires. And he's saying, don't use your freedom to sell yourself back into slavery. Now, again, you guys, I think this is mind-blowing. This is, this is timeless wisdom from the Apostle Paul. And I think the same thing that he says here applies to the society we live in right now. In fact, can I just give you, I'll give you just one very clear example of how we see the same idea in our society right now. And, the, and one, of those, one of those ways that we see that would be through pornography. Um, all of us have probably heard the mind-boggling statistics that are centered around pornography and about how pornography has been a major impetus in the sex-crazed culture that we've seen. You guys have probably heard this before, but in in the United States alone, uh, the porn industry rakes in more money than the MLB, the NBA, and the NFL combined. And I'll tell you what's crazy is neurologists and neuroscientists are looking at porn and the effects that it has on the person and specifically on the human mind. And we've talked about this here at the Medina East Campus. And they are saying, neurologists are saying that regular habitual porn usage has the same effect on the brain as addictive chemicals and drugs. We've actually looked at this before. This is an actual brain scan. Here's your brain, right? You guys remember this whole thing? Here's your brain on heroin, and here's your brain on porn. And we've also talked here at the Medina campus, just to give some of you hope, that neurologists say that even going 90 days without pornography begins to reverse some of the, some of the neurological effects that porn has on the brain. And I'm just telling you, this is what Paul said. This is exactly what he said. I'm free to do whatever. He says, yeah, but I don't want to be enslaved by anything. I don't want to be enslaved. So he addresses that. But then the Apostle Paul is going to deal with the second quotation, the second part of their narrative. He says, he says you guys say food for the stomach and stomach for the food, but God's going to destroy them both. Now, what, what's he mean by that, food for the stomach and stomach for the food? Well, like I said, this was a slogan that the Corinthians used about sex. And basically what they meant was this. Sex is just an appetite. You know, if you're hungry, you eat. If you're thirsty, you drink. If you're tired, you sleep. If you want to have sex, you just do it. That's it. It's just an appetite. It's a biological impulse, and it has no bearing on your spiritual, your spirituality at all. And by the way, this mentality that sex is just an appetite was actually something in the first century uh, that actually was, was caused by something in the first century that was called dualism. 
Now, I don't know if if some of you guys remember what this is. Pastor Kevin talked about this last week. But in the first century, because of philosophies like Platonism and philosophies like Gnosticism and Manichaeism, these kind of, you don't need to remember all that stuff. But because of these different philosophies, they believed that there there was a separation of the soul and the body. And so the body was one thing and the spirit was another thing. And what you did with your body had no bearing on what happened with your spirit. The body was bad and the spirit was good. And so you could basically do whatever you want with your body. You could sleep with whoever you wanted and you could still love God and you could still worship God. And those two things had nothing to do with each other. That's the idea of of dualism. Now here's what's interesting. And like I said before, this was written 2,000 years ago. And yet I think that today you see that same idea, that same concept of sex is an appetite, sex is just physical, it has no bearing on my soul. I think that actually persists in our time. Let's give you a couple examples of this. Um, In our society, so let me just show you, this is actually a quotation from a video from Children's Television Workshop. It's actually a video that's used in sex education in schools uh, very, very widely. And here's how this video um, defines sexual relations. It says, sexual relations are something done by two adults to give each other pleasure. That's it. That's the definition. No mention of relationship, no mention of marriage, and no, not even a mention of love. It's just something that two people do to give each other. Now, I don't know about you. There's a whole lot of things that could fall in that category, right? Two things that people do to give each other Pleasure. I'm like, I don't know, play pickleball together. <laughs> like, that's something that two people do to give each other, play, cook, your, cook each other dinner. I'm like, there's so many other things. And it, it reduces sex down. Or how about this one? Rolling Stone Magazine did an interview with a bunch of young adults about sex and sexuality. They interviewed one young man from Austin, Texas. He said this, sex is just a piece of body touching another piece of body. It is existentially meaningless. Now, what is that? That's, that's dualism. That's dualism. It's just, one, listen, it's just one part of a body touching another part of the body. In other words, what has he said there? Listen, if, if, I, was, if I was out in the cafe and you slapped me a high five, what is that? <laughs> it's one part of the body touching another part of the body. If you see me in the cafe and you give me knuckles, like no, one, no one's going to do that after today's talk, right? <laughs> like He's like, that's just one part of the body touching another part of the body. And listen, I think the reason we laugh is because it takes all of three seconds of thinking to realize that this is absurd. And I, I'll just, if you don't believe me, I'll prove it to you, okay? If you don't think that this is absurd, if a stranger were to come up to your son or daughter on the street and say, give me a high five, like you'd be like, oh, that's, that was, I don't know, you know, okay. If a stranger came up to your child and did something sexually, engaged them sexually, we all know that that would be a totally different story. Why is that? Sex, there's something different about sex. There's something different about the way that God has designed it. It's not just one part of the body. How about this one? All right, so Katy Perry, this is actually a little dated, but in her song, what does she say? I don't even know your name. It doesn't matter what your name is. You're my experimental game. It's just human nature. So, so what is that? Again, what you hear is you hear the dualism, right? You hear this idea that it doesn't, I, I don't need to know your name. It was just, we're just having a good time. It's a sexual ex- experimentation. It's all of that. I'll tell you what else is, is interesting. This idea that sex is an appetite is actually something that we continue to hear in our society today. Some of you might know there's a popular podcast that's out right now about uh, sexuality and sexual freedom specifically for women. And you know what the podcast is called? Some of you guys have heard this. It's called 
girls got to eat, which is so interesting to me because I'm like, that is exactly what the Corinthians would have said. Sex is an appetite. So how does the apostle Paul respond to this then? How does he respond to the sexual narrative of the Corinthians? Now, here's what I want you to see. All right, this is so incredible to me. The way the Apostle Paul responds is not what a lot of us would typically think. The Apostle Paul doesn't come in with scare tactics. Okay? He doesn't come in. He's not like, you guys, think of all the STDs and the STIs. He doesn't say, you guys, there's a thousand prostitutes, which, by the way, he probably could have said that, and he could have been right, but he doesn't do that. Nor does the Apostle Paul just say, you guys, don't. End of the letter. He doesn't do that either. Paul gives a response that is, I'm just, you're going to see it. It's, it's actually very deep. It's very rich. And it's unapologetically theological in nature. I think what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's giving to the Corinthians what I call the gospel narrative. What we could call the gospel narrative. He's going to say, let me rewire the way you're thinking about sex and sexuality. He's inviting them to rewire their understanding of sex and sexuality. So what is the gospel narrative? Well, to answer the question this way, what is sex and why does it matter? Well, the gospel narrative, what the Bible would say, is that sex is a good gift. It's a good gift. It's intentionally created by God. And it's an important, now here's, here's what's key, it's an important metaphor. Sex isn't even about sex. Sex is about something bigger than sex, and it's a metaphor teaching us about God's covenant love. Now, look, I, I know that even when I say that, some of you are like, this is such a new paradigm of thinking for you that you're like, I don't even know what you just said. Like, what is that? What do you even mean? Sex is a metaphor that's about God's covenant love. That might be an entirely new idea to you. Let me show you what Paul says. Paul says this. He says to the Corinthians, the body, however, is not, now notice this, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Now, isn't that interesting? Paul says, listen, your body is meant for something, which means what? It means there's a purpose behind it. He says, your body, what you do with your body matters. It's meant for something. And even more than that, he says, your body's not just meant for something. Your body is meant for some one. He says, your body's meant for the Lord. Your body was created by the Lord, and your body is meant for the Lord. You know, I think sometimes we can fall into this mentality that the reason that God exists is that God exists to make me happy and God exists to fulfill my desires. But I think what the scripture is gonna say is it's actually the opposite. We were created to glorify God and we were created in our bodies so that our bodies would fulfill God's desires. So Paul's gonna flip the script. He's gonna say, you were made. Your, what you do with your body matters. You were made for the Lord. And look at this. And he says, and God loves you and he created you and he's even gonna raise you. He says that you, listen, you and I, and Kevin talked about this last week, you and I are going, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we are going to be spending eternity in our bodies because of the resurrection. So what we do with our bodies really, really, really matters. And so he's gonna say this. And now I want you to notice what he goes on to say after this. He says, listen, your body's meant for something. It, it matters what you do with your body. And then he says, don't you know, that your bodies are members of Christ himself. That's a crazy idea. Shall I then take the, take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. 
Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now, do you notice, I highlighted it here, the amount of times that the apostle Paul says, unite and one and oneness, and the two will become one and they will be united. What is Paul saying? He's saying this, you guys, sex is about way more than just sex. He says, sex is about unity Sex is about oneness. And then he gives this quote. He says, and the two are going to become one flesh, for it is said. Now, you might be asking, okay, well, Paul's been quoting a lot of stuff. So what is he quoting here? Is he quoting another popular slogan from the Corinthians? And the answer is no. Here he's actually quoting from Genesis, from the very first pages, from the very first page of the book of Genesis. So what is the Apostle Paul saying? Here's what, in other words, here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, if you, are un- if you want to understand what sex is, he says, don't look to the culture. Don't look to your own opinion. Paul says, look at creation. Go back to where it started. Go back to the very first place where we see sex created in Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two. He's gonna say, go back to those places. In other words, here's what I think Paul's trying to help us see. I think what he's saying is, listen, sex is created. It's created by God. And the one who designed it gets to define it. And so we should look to the designer to understand what that definition is. And by the way, if you go back to Genesis chapters one and two, what you're gonna find is this, that in the beginning there was sex and that before there was sin, there was sex. That God created sex and God created sex to be really, really, really good. It was something he made all the way back at the beginning. And so what does that mean? Here's what it means. It means, you guys, that the Bible's not anti-sex. God is not anti-sex. God loves sex. God made sex. God is not ashamed of sex. Uh, God created it the way he did for a reason. God knows it feels good. He's not ashamed it feels good. He put those nerve endings where he put those nerve endings. Hallelujah, praise Jesus. Uh, He did those things for a reason. It It wasn't like God created humans and then like went away to make a sandwich and then came back and was like, what are they doing? Like, that's not what happened. Like, he, he made it this way. That's what he did, right? And I'll be honest with you guys. If I'm just being totally transparent with you, I praise God that he made it the way he made it. Sex is an awesome thing. And God could have made it in a lot of different ways if he wanted to. Uh, just, just to give you a little, little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's worth it. Let me just talk to you, for example, just a small example, about the birds and the bees. And let's talk about that. So um, do you, you guys know the mating ritual of the honeybees? Do you guys know about this? I'm sure you do, but let me remind you. All right, so honeybees. God could have made it like this for us. So here's what happens with the honeybees. The queen bee will venture out on a flight for the sole purpose of mating. Male drone bees will mount the queen mid-flight to inseminate their seed. Once finished, the drone flies away, but his endophilus remains stuck inside of the queen, causing the pelvis to be ripped open and resulting in his death. (laughs) I'm just saying, God could have made it that way for us. (laughs) And I'm glad he didn't because... Father's Day would be a really sad and scary <laughs> holiday. Would it be like Father's Day? Oh. <laughs> so, so that's the big, right, how about the birds? What about the birds? So the white-fronted parrot, you guys know about them, right? White front, and, the, and the mating ritual of the, of the white-fronted parrots, the, they first kiss by putting their beaks together and touching each other's tongues. All God's people said, aw, right? Aw. But then the male vomits into the female's <laughs> mouth. So... I mean, God could have done it that way. 
but he did it. So all I'm trying to say is God is... He's given us a beautiful gift in human sexuality. It's pleasurable, and he knows that. But when you look at Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you know what you're going to see? You're going to see that sex was not just created for pleasure. You're going to see that all the way back from the very beginning, that every time you see God's desire for sex, it is always accompanied by marriage. It is always. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, right there with sex is marriage. Those two. And when you look at the biblical authors, when you look at Jesus, and when you look at Paul, They're all going to affirm the same thing, that sex is something that is created. It is created for marriage. I love the way one author, uh, John Mark Comer, put it in his book, Loveology. He said, something powerful happens in sex. And God made it that way, right? Something powerful happens. Two humans become one. They know each other, and this action cannot be undone. It's irreversible. And to God, the only relationship that's strong enough to hold that kind of untamed, fierce power is marriage. I love the way he puts this. It's the only container that can handle the nuclear force that we call sex. So God God has put sex. He's made it beautifully, and he's put it in a wonderful container that God has. I'll put it another way. I think what Paul is saying is this, is you must never have physical oneness, sex, without a whole life oneness, which is marriage. And can I just say, I think that this is the part that the purity narrative gets right. They get this right, that it is true that God did create sex for marriage. But, but here's the deeper question that I think the purity, merit, the purity narrative doesn't ask. And the deeper question is this, why did God create sex for marriage? Why? What is the purpose of that? And I think what you're going to see is from Genesis to Revelation, that you're going to see the Bible is going to say that sex and marriage are actually not just about sex and marriage. Sex and marriage are actually a shadow of a greater substance. They're intended to be a picture of a greater metaphor. They're to be a signpost that points to something greater than themselves. And what is that? The book of Ephesians is going to say this. It is God's love for his people. It is Christ in the church. I just want you to think about this with me for a minute. Now, again, I know for some of you, this is a brand new paradigm. But what is marriage? According to the Bible, according to Scripture, not not according to anyone else, but according to Scripture, what is marriage? Here's what marriage is in the Bible. Marriage is a covenant. It's a covenant. Now, covenant, what does that mean? It means this. It means that it's an, an enduring commitment. It's a vow, right? It is a promise that is made. And it's one that's exclusive, and it's lifelong. It's one man and one woman for an entire lifetime together till death do us part. And as a result of this covenant commitment, it results in a whole life oneness. Our whole life is now integrated together as one. Financially, relationally, legally, we are bound up. If you have student loans, they are now my student loans. What is true about me is true about you. You take on my name. We are now bound up together. We are viewed as one legal entity now because we are now married, right? That's what marriage is. And as a result of all of that, the Bible is going to say that because of that, you are also one in body. Sexual, sex, uh, sexuality comes alongside of that. And, and that is the o- this is the only container that can hold the amazing thing that is in sex. Now, I want you to think about this. What is all of this pointing to? Well, the Bible's going to say this is all a picture of and a reflection of God's covenant love for us. How does God love us? Here's what scripture's going to say. He has made an enduring commitment to us. Because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are in a new covenant. It's the word. God has promised us this relationship. It is exclusive and it is eternal. When a person 
puts their faith and vows their faith in God, the Bible's going to say that that is exclusive. It is one God and one people. It is one groom, Jesus, and one bride, his church. And it is something that's eternal. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God, neither height nor depth, nor angel nor demon, nor past nor present. Nothing can separate you from the promise of, that God has given to you in his covenant. This results in a whole life oneness. And now my life is wrapped up with God. And what's true of him becomes true of me. I take on his name. And my debts become his. And he's paid them for me. And we're wrapped up in one. And now the Bible's actually gonna say that we are all part of his body. That we are members of his body is what the scripture is going to say. All of this is intended to be a picture. Sex is intended to be a metaphor that helps us understand God's love and displays it to the world around us. So in light of that, what does sexual maturity look like? Well, sexual maturity looks like deepening in one's understanding of God's covenant love and honoring God with one's body. So what does it look like to flourish sexually? Well, actually what it looks like is it looks like understanding God's love more and more and more and then living into offering my body and honoring God with my body to live in light of this covenant. Yeah, I think, I think you guys, this is why the apostle Paul is gonna say this. Apostle Paul says, listen, you should flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now, some of you are saying, what does he mean by that? That, you know, whoever sins sexually sins against their own bodies. He's saying that sexual sin is worse than other sins. No, that's not what he's saying. He's just saying it's unique. It's different. And I, I think all of us in this room would probably, if we thought about it long enough, would agree with this. There is a deeper regret, there's a deeper hurt, and there's a deeper pain and remorse that comes with sexual sin than comes with others. We care. My guess is if I was to ask you, tell me about your greatest regrets in life or tell me about your greatest pain in life, for many of us, that might be tied to something that happened to us sexually. And so because of that, Paul says you should flee from sexual immorality. Why? Because God really cares about you, so you should flee from sexual immorality. Now, by the way, Sexual immorality, the word that's used there, is actually just a very basic word in the Greek language. It's the word pornea, which you can probably tell is where we get our word pornography from, but it means more than just pornography. Uh, Sexual immorality literally is a junk drawer term that just means any kind of sex outside of God's parameters within marriage. That's what sexual immorality is. So it's extramarital relationships. It'd be sleeping with your boyfriend or sleeping with your girlfriend. It would include things like pornography, friends with benefits, casual sex, hookup culture. It would include things like smutty novels and, and, and all kinds of other things. That would Any kind of sex that's outside of God's design for sex, that's sexual immorality. And here's what Paul says. He says you should flee from that. You should flee from that. I think that's really interesting. There's other places in the Bible where Paul's gonna say things like this. He's gonna say, listen, when you're facing spiritual warfare, you should take your stand, is what he says. Put on the full armor of God, Ephesians 6. He's gonna say, when it comes to hardships, you should endure them. When it comes to sexual immorality, run, get out, flee. Why? Because he says it's different. It's different. So we should flee from sexual immorality. Then he says this, don't you know, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. For those of us who follow Christ, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He's in us, whom you've received from God. We're not our own. We're not our own. This is the opposite of what sex positivity says. You're your own. You decide whatever you want. This says, no, I've been bought. I've been bought at a price. 
So I should honor God with my body. So what does sexual morality look like? It looks like this. Jesus came to redeem humanity, including our sexual brokenness. Righteousness does not come from our sexual behavior, but from Jesus' death and resurrection. Can I tell you, one of the, I think one of the downsides of the purity narrative is the purity narrative can cause us to believe that the way that we're made right sexually is if we can just abstain from, from sex before marriage. And if you can do that, then you're sexually righteous. And if you can't do that, then you're sexually broken. And I think, that that's, I think in many ways that's a false gospel. Because what does the gospel say? Here's what the gospel says. All of us are broken. Every single one of us. And we all need Jesus. It's not what we do, it's what he's done. And we rely on him to be the one who transforms us. You guys, I know that's a lot. What I'm telling you right now is a lot of information. So you might be asking, what do I what do, I do with all of this? And can I just end maybe, maybe with this? I believe that in light of what the Apostle Paul says here, in light of what Scripture says, I think that God is inviting us into a few things. So first off, I think this. I think that God is inviting us to rewire our sexual narrative. I think when you read 1 Corinthians 6, what you see is the Apostle Paul is confronting the sexual narrative of these people, and then he's inviting them to live into something different. I think God's inviting you to do the same. You know, I asked you the question at the beginning. I said, what is your sexual narrative? Do you know what you're, do, do you know how you'd answer those questions? What do you believe about sexuality? What do you believe about your sex? And I think what the scripture is saying is it's inviting us to say, what if there's a creator behind this thing? And what does he desire? And it's inviting us to live into that narrative. Now, listen, I know for some of you, this might be such an entirely new paradigm, what I'm telling you here today, that quite honestly, it might sound so foreign that you're not even sure that you fully understand what we're saying right now. You're like, I don't even, I mean, I don't really, you said that like sex is about a covenant. I don't even know what that is. And, and let me just encourage you that if that's you, I think it takes more than one talk. It takes a lifetime of pursuing God's design for sex in your life. And so my encouragement to you would be keep, to keep pursue that, to understand what God means about our sexuality. This is why we're having this event that I told you guys about. I just wanna tell you a little bit more about it. If you go to our website, we're gonna have an event called Rethinking Sexuality. It's gonna be here on July 9th. It's gonna be a Sunday night. And uh, basically, we're gonna get a chance to come together. We're gonna get a chance to hear from Dr. Julie Slattery. And then we're gonna do an open Q&A. And uh, we're going to get a chance to answer any question about sex and about gender, which we're talking next week. By the way, if you go to the website, you can register for this now. We're asking it's $5. That's just to cover the cost of the thing. And uh, let me just tell you, too, you guys, we're inviting the whole campus to this. And so we understand that space is going to be limited. So if you're thinking about coming, I would encourage you to register uh, so that we can continue on this journey together. So I think for what, what the first thing is that we, I think we're being invited to rewire our sexual narrative. Here's the second thing. I think that we're being invited to repent of defining sex on our own. I think what the Bible is inviting us into, what Jesus is inviting us into, is to repent, is to repent. Now, unfortunately, when I say the word repent, I know that that is one that carries some really negative connotations, especially if you're someone who grew up in a religious background. I think for a lot of us, unfortunately, when we think about repent, we think that it means to just feel perpetually sorry all the time that you should just feel sorry and feel bad all the time. And unfortunately, that's not what the word repent means. The word repent in the Greek language literally means this. It just means to change your mind. It means to change your mind and it means to change the way that you were going. That's it. 
And I think scripture is inviting you to do that. I think scripture is saying, think about your sexual narrative. And then it's saying, uh, it's inviting us to change that, to say, think differently about it. What if you embraced God's design for sexuality? And I think as a result of that, as we change our mind, for some of us, that means that there's probably some things in our life that maybe we need to change. And so maybe, maybe for some of us in this room, we know in light of what God says about sex that there's some things that we need to shift around in our life. Maybe for you, there's a conversation that you need to have with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And, and you know that you have been using sex or engaging in sex in a way that doesn't fit God's narrative And you're like, you know what? I need to repent of that. I need to change the way I think and there's some things I need to change in my life. Maybe for some of you, there's a relationship that you need to end, that you know is not healthy because it's not in alignment with God's view of sexuality. Maybe for some of you, maybe for some of you, there's someone on social media that you need to unfriend that is a dangerous spot for you. Or maybe there's something that you need to unsubscribe from. Maybe for some of you, you need to get some filters on your phone or your computer. Maybe for some of you, there is a secret pornography addiction that has you so tightly wrapped up that you can't even imagine going a certain length of time without it. And maybe that means that you need to be honest with someone, to talk about that with somebody. Um, maybe for you, maybe you need to move out. You know, I, I just gotta say this, and I say this because I love you, but there, I know that there are some, some of you who are followers of Jesus who are following Christ, but you're living together or you're sleeping together with the person you're engaged to or your boyfriend or girl who you're not married to. And I just wanna, I wanna tell you, I don't think that's, I think the scripture's gonna say you need to flee from that and you might need to change, change something in that. And I know what some of you have said, because I talk, I've talked to some, some of you say, yeah, but you know what? We're married in our hearts. We're married in our hearts. So with all due respect, let me, and I love you, let me just say this, you're not married in your hearts, you're married in your pants. And God wants something different for you than that. He wants to invite you into something different. So for some of us, we need to repent. I think the other thing is, I think we're being invited to reclaim, to reclaim the gospel narrative. For those of us who follow Christ, I think that this topic is one that for some of us, we just feel so much shame bringing up. I think it's one that the church should not be shy talking about. It's one that we shouldn't be shy talking about in our life groups and our discipleship relationships. Listen, if you're a parent, if you're a parent in this room, I think that sex is something that we should talk about with our children early and often. I I think we need to use discretion in how we do that. But I believe that we need to offer a more complete narrative than the purity narrative and a more compelling narrative than the cultural one. And then here's the last one. And with this, I'll invite the band up. I think for all of us, what what God is inviting us to do is to receive God's grace in Jesus, is to receive God's grace in Jesus. And I understand, and one of the things I've been praying for so hard this week is I understand every time we talk about what the Bible says about sex, that there's always going to be many of us who are here that have a hard time hearing these things because all we are reminded of is the places that we've been in the past and the things that have happened to us and the things that we've done and the regrets that we carry and maybe some of the pain and the the scars that we carry from past sexual decisions or past sexual encounters. And listen, I know that maybe even for some of you, it's hard to hear this because you're hearing about God's ideal for sex and maybe for you, you're just thinking about how far, how far you are from that or you've been from that. And I know there's some of you who maybe are hearing this and you're just thinking to yourself, you're just wondering to yourself, is there hope for me? 
Is there hope for me? You know, if you know where I've been, if you know what I've done, if you know what happened to me or you knew what's been taken from me, is there hope for me? And you guys, here's the, the good, 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 good news. Is that with Jesus, with Jesus, there is always hope. Always, always hope. And every time you turn to him and every time you come to him, you're going to find a second chance, a third chance. You're gonna find him embracing. Yeah, you know what I love what Paul says? Paul says to these Corinthians, this is what he says to them. He says, this is what some of you were. He says, you used to live that way. That's who you used to be. He says, but now that you've put your faith in Christ, you've been washed. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. And I love what he says there. He says, listen, you guys have been washed. You've been sanctified and you've been justified. And I I know that for a lot of us, those might sound like just like churchy words, but what do they mean? You've been washed. It means this. It means that you've been cleansed of your sin. You've been forgiven. You've been sanctified, which means what? It means you've been set apart. God says, you're mine now. And what I say about you is true more than what you feel or what anyone else says. And you've been justified, which means that you have been made right in God's eyes. And whenever you turn to Jesus, that's what you're gonna find every single time is God wants to invite you in to cleanse you, to renew you, to set you apart and to justify you. If you would just surrender to him, if you would just turn to him and trust him. Let's pray. Well, Father, we just wanna say thank you that you love us so much that you didn't just leave us alone on a topic like this. God, you're the creator of sex. You're the author of our sexuality. And God, you created us to understand something about you through our sex and in our sexuality. And so God, I pray that you would help us to come to you to find that you're not just the creator of sex, but that you're also our father who loves us. And that because of that, God, you know know what's the best for us. You know uh, what, where flourishing is found. And so I pray that in these next moments as we have a chance to worship and sing, Lord, that we lay down at your feet all the things that we bring into this conversation. Help us to surrender to you our view of what sex is. Help us to surrender to you the guilt and the shame and the past and the pain that maybe for some of us we carry. Help us to lay all that at your feet to find your grace, to find your hope, to find your love. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.